0: Through all this negativity, you know what they could do? Sweep the Royals, go into the all-star, break above 500, and make us all shut up.
1: Anything to make you shut up. You know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving! Yeah! The show goes on! Yeah!
0: You're listening to The Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Five to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable! I just wanted to be noted, Zach. They had a chance. They could have shut us up. All it would have taken was one little sweep against the Royals, but nope. Couldn't get it done. Three out of four is the final result. As we left us on the Patreon show saying... One sweep and we'll just shut up about all the negativity in the first half. They'll be above 500. Well, there'll be nothing for us to complain about. Well, we'll find a few things to complain about. What do you think?
1: You know what that sound means? That means you just made a movie reference that <laughs> Zach understands. Hey! <laughs>
0: wow! That's incredible. What do I win? I feel like I even need to get this fired up. How about that? Wolf of Wall Street. I wonder why you saw that movie. Anyway, I'm,
1: I'm so happy. we finally I thought Leo was
0: crossed that threshold.
1: Leo was fantastic in Titanic, and I had to see what he did next. <laughs> yeah, that was the,
0: the big selling factor of that movie, yeah. The first half of the movie's actually like, when does she show up? Oh, there we go. There's Margot Robbie for everybody. Thank you for showing up. Uh, Guardians anyway. mostly showed up this weekend to end the first half, three out of four. This comes back to something I said a couple of shows ago. Doesn't it always feel like even when they're at their best, they're still that next level. Oh, There's so much closer to having a terrific end to the, the first half by sweeping the Royals, but unfortunately, they, the, the offense that they had discovered disappears in the finale, but they still head into the break at 500, holding on very carefully to the top spot in the American League Central. I don't know. How do you wrap this first half into a nice little bow? Nice little tidy bow for everybody listening.
1: They're 45 and 45. <laughs> That's they're, they're even. I mean, it, it was so fitting that you had Bieber on the mound, who's supposed to be your ace, facing a Royals team that has just been dreadful. And go walk into that Royals clubhouse and ask anybody in there how they're doing, because there's a lot of familiar faces, and they just seem so beaten and defeated. And, oh well, we're not very good. How are you? It's you had a chance to, to sweep that series. You beaver on the mound. How are you? <laughs> you beaver on the mound against a guy who hadn't pitched in a long time because he got drilled with a comebacker like this was set up for you to take the series sweep and ride into the All-Star break with all that momentum and The Twins reeling after a series against the Orioles. And you lost. So we don't need to dwell on the one game when they've played better over the last few weeks. But it just, that just felt fitting, right? Like they can't get out of their own way. And even when things are looking good and everything's set up, you know, it's like class A comes in to get some work in in a four run game. That's the day he gives up four runs, like things like that that we've seen all season so it figures that that's how they close out the first half
0: we'll get to bieber we'll talk about the first half i want to revisit some of our own stupidity too and laugh at ourselves it's all part of the first half i do want to welcome everyone to the selby's godcast before zach yells at me for doing it 40 minutes into the show i'm tj That zach you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify if you know that you're probably already here listening but i'm putting it out there for the new people And for you newbies, come join us over at YouTube, too, where we put up the free episode up on YouTube. So subscribe, like, help us grow on that side of of the podcast as well, and help us reach more Guardians fans. And of course, if you're looking for more episodes of the show, one just isn't enough. Uh, Sometimes I question whether or not one is enough for just the two of us looking at each other. But if you want more... Patreon.com/selby godcast come join the Discord. you get access to the Discord when you become a Patreon supporter. It's a good time. We appreciate all of you, and you get that for one dollar per additional episode. We do that typically one per week. So thank you for being here. Thank you for hanging out with us through the first half. It's been a uh, a first half to on some, some level to remember and some half to absolutely forget it. As you said, Zach was like three seasons in one to get through this first half. And somehow they emerge from it through all this disappointment and all this negativity and so much to be pissed off about, because the Central Division is what it is. You head into the break at the, in first place in this division, and it it sort of feels like it's it's theirs to lose. I don't know if that's just because that's the the mindset we take watching the Guardians every single day. I'm sure if you asked a Twins fan, a even a Twins journalist, they might disagree. How, how did we emerge through the first half with this team still finding a way to reach 500 and being in first place? And if you're going to tell me it's all because of the Kansas City Royals, I might listen to
1: that. No, I mean, they. I haven't looked at this stat in a little bit, so don't quote me on it. But I think that they've been okay against winning teams. I mean, early in the season, like they kept tripping up against the doormats of the league. Like They've struggled against the Tigers and the White Sox. So to me, it's not even, I, I keep saying this. It's like, I don't care about the central. I don't care about the division. I don't care what happened in April or May or even June at this point. It's looking forward. What is this team? And I think you feel better about just the way they've played for the last few weeks. It doesn't feel like anything they're doing is unsustainable now the unsustainable part might be relying on rookie starting pitchers and whether Shane Bieber will be here. But if you look at their lineup, like, is any is anyone's slash line, like, crazy? Like, oh, my God, there's no way this keeps up. No, not at all. I think a you guys, you know, Ahmed Rosario has course-corrected a little bit. Jose Ramirez, course-corrected a little bit. So... I think that's sort of fueled them. I think you could still expect more from Andre Jimenez and Josh Bell. And so I, I, I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think this is Cleveland's division to lose. We also have, you can't just completely disregard what happened last year. I think that's part of why we feel that way. Because we've seen the Guardians do this and we haven't seen the Twins do it. So I don't know what's going to happen, but to me, if I'm, the front office I'm looking at this team and I'm not caring about the last three, three months I'm looking ahead and saying regard like the divisions there for the taking that's fine but what do we need to actually be a threat and to help ourselves next year and the year after too well it's the case with this team they always learn so
0: much about themselves as the year unfolds and they've learned how to better deploy some players in some cases, maybe they haven't deployed them enough, but I look at a guy like Tyler Freeman who has, has stepped in and just every opportunity they've given him off the bench, he continues to thrive in a way that I am surprised that a younger player could do this in a bench role without a ton of major league experience. But that's sort of the reputation for him, right? He just rolls out of the rack and can hit 280, 290. Um, and we've seen that. And so maybe you get a better understanding of how he can be implemented. Do you hold against them? the time when Mike Zanino was the catcher because he's not now. Now it's Bo Naylor. I don't know what he's going to be offensively for the rest of this year, and we certainly have seen him go through his struggles. But it certainly seems like the days where he has a multi-hit game that there's a lot more of that on the way. I don't know how consistently it's going to get there, and boy, when she start building up games and getting towards the end of the season, how does he handle that Major League workload on top of the mental workload of taking on a brand new pitching staff and and taking on all that new on top of just never being here before. We don't know how he's going to react to all of that, but this is different than when Mike Zanino was catching every single day. so it's a different sort of team. Now those are just two examples. you can look at that in the starting rotation too. there was a a, a portion of the very, very early season when, you had Zach Plesak starting games, and Cal Quantrill starting games. I don't know that maybe neither one of those game neither neither one of those guys starts a game for the rest of the year. I don't know. So this is a different team than certainly where they started. That makes it, I think, fun on some level because you think they've made some improvements across the board. This is also a little bit terrifying because, as I said, Bo Naylor You have no major league track record to go on. Uh, The starting pitching, you're trying to manage their workload through the entirety of this season with guys that have never put in that that inning total. There's a lot of of I don't know here. And I guess that's not too different from where we started the year with a bunch of guys that we didn't know how they'd back up a first year of success.
1: Yeah, I think the thing is, we always talk about Terry Francona's teams play better in the second half, and there's there's a reason for that. It's not just you snap your fingers and it happens, so assume it's gonna happen again, but a lot of times they try to work through every scenario, every roster opportunity they can to just do their due diligence and and make sure they're not missing anything and make sure you know someone they don't cut someone in April who could have had success here if they would have just given them a chance, it's, you know, there's an order of operations to this. And I think, you know, I think part of the confusion this season for all of us has been what that order of operations is because it doesn't seem to align with the way that they think about things over the course of more than just one season. And we know Ahmed Rosario is probably not going to be here next year, next year. Um, and that you want to learn about these young guys and let them develop and not stall that. And they haven't quite done that. So I'm, I am curious to see if there are changes to that down the stretch. Um, you know, I don't, right. What more can Tyler Freeman do to prove that even if it's three days a week, he should be in the lineup, right? It's let him prove that until he can't. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm really interested to see the trade deadline decisions not just with the Guardians but the Twins too. You know, they're in a weird spot. Like they're they have some youth, but they're also I never know what they're doing. It always feels like they're caught in the middle between being a young rebuilding team and being a team that <laughs> wants to win a playoff game for once. So, I I don't I don't know, but I'm curious to see if this becomes You know, if both teams upgrade or if one team stays pat and stands pat and one team kind of stays neutral by rearranging some deck chairs. I don't know. Maybe the biggest question to ask is what happens to
0: Cleveland's ace in the second half. Is he going to be here beyond the end of July? We don't know that yet, and I don't think the team really knows that yet either. And his performance has even clouded this more than than maybe you could have anticipated to this point. Because he just seems like a Jekyll and Hyde, if I've ever seen it, of two pitchers that those first 70, 75 pitches just kind of rolls along like you would expect an ace to do. And then you get to about that 70, 75 pitch mark, and he turns into a pumpkin. And it is it's been pretty confounding here, and it's it's not just like a one- or two-start thing. It's been like a steadily evol- evolving thing with him where you're looking at third time through the lineup or pitch number. Whatever you want to look at, the numbers just get significantly worse, and this is not someone that I would typically think that about throughout most of his career, that he's, oh, you can only take him two times through the lineup. He's usually pretty good at making adjustments throughout the game and, and being smart enough to to not only do that start to start, but also within a game. We used to see Corey Kluber do that so magnificently when he was at the peak of his powers, and I'd always marvel at his ability to do that a third time through the lineup. I haven't figured it out yet. I'm not sure if the team has. I would love to be able to sit down with their data and see, is there something in the stuff that just goes off a cliff at the 70-75 pitch mark? Normally, maybe I would just chalk it up to just whatever. It's just a weird thing that happens throughout the course of a season. But how they've acted about his workload, and when they've pulled him out of starts, has me kind of sounding the conspiracy music just a just a little bit, like not full fledged mm-hmm. to the to the eleventh power here. But I I'm at least a little bit intrigued by it because why do we see him get lifted out of it? What was it, three four starts ago, when he's rolling through six innings? You just oh he's coming back out for the seventh, and there's no there's no Bieber. What, what's happening? And they're saying oh well. We're looking to manage the workload here. And you're looking at the pitch count and you're thinking, wasn't this usually when he tumbles off the edge of the cliff? And now coming out of the break, they're giving him some extra days. And it's like, well, we just we've put a lot on him over the years. Okay, I just sort of buy that if it's just the one thing. But there's multiple things here that just have me scratching my head and wanting to know a little bit more. Is there something within the numbers that they see in his stuff that is just, it's not as crisp as it good as it is as in that first 60, 65, 70 pitches that they're wanting to get him out of these games earlier. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I haven't been able to decipher anything, but I do think that they the way that they've handled this is again not full fledged. Oh my god, what are they doing? There has to be something wrong with him. But it's enough, isn't it enough to get the
1: antenna up a little bit? Yeah. Absolutely. And I've asked around. I mean, I've asked him and Tito and Carl Willis and others, and I don't know the answer either. I'm inclined to say it's, well, it could be a couple of things. Number one, he's never had this problem in the past. If you look at his OPS the third time through the order, 2019 opponents OPS 639, 2020 430, which is absurd. 2021 592. 2022, 663. This year, and by the way, those are all well below or above league average. Well, far beyond better than league average. This year, opponents the third time through the order are slashing 315, 351, 589 against him. So that's a 939 OPS, which is 42% worse than league average so he said you know maybe he and he's given up eight home runs the third time through this year by the way so he has said like you know maybe i need to throw more fastballs and i think kind of use his command to his advantage and um just keep guys off the other stuff better that's fine but it is weird. A couple things. One, first of all, your fastball only 91-92 anymore. We don't need to belabor the velocity point because he's proven in the past that he can get by with that. But he doesn't throw his curveball nearly as much anymore. We've theorized maybe why. Don't know the answer for sure. He hasn't inclined to reveal that. So he's become like a slider-cutter guy. And the cutter, I haven't looked at the stats recently, but I know from earlier in the season than last year, like... That pitch gets hit. He honestly uses it more just to like get guys off the fastball. Like here's something that looks like the fastball but moves like the slider. The problem is if you're a cutter slider guy and they see cutter slider the first time and they see cutter slider the second time, what do you think they're going to be looking for the third time? If if they are confident that you're not going to throw that curveball or that if you are going to throw that curveball, it's just to bounce it in the dirt and they're not scared of your fastball, you're just... You don't have as many ways to beat them as you used to. That's too simple of an approach for that to be exactly why this is what it is. And but I, I do think there's something there, and I'm sure it's it's probably a combination of factors because, as you said, it's been very curious. You know that that Arizona start he was dealing, and they left him in there a fourth time to face Corbin Carroll and the rest of the middle of that order. And in the eighth inning, he kind of fell apart. And, you know, Terry Francona said something. He is not shy about saying, you know, I left this guy in too long. And those earned runs you gave up at the end. Those are on me. Things like that. But then they course corrected by... I'm using that phrase too much. They, they, they changed things the next week when you mentioned the Milwaukee start. He was at like 80 pitches. And they have Tim Herron warming, even though he had given up one run. So, it's very strange. He has not pitched as deep into games recently. And on top of that, he's not going to pitch until the fourth day out of the break. So, he's going to end up getting like nine days, I think. And the way they organize this, I think Gavin Williams gets like an extra day, maybe two. I think two. Tanner Bybee gets a few. You could have given those guys even more and just pitched Bieber on. didn't even have to be regular rest. You could have given Bieber an extra day and have him pitch Saturday in Texas. It's weird because, yeah, they've leaned on him, but he also hasn't pitched deep in the games, and he's been throwing 80, 85 pitches a start for the last few weeks. So it seems weird that he would need the rest. It's just it's all really strange. I don't know. I'm usually not conspiracy guy. I usually don't buy into the fact that like a team is holding back a player to preserve his trade value or showcasing someone, things like that. I usually don't really buy into that stuff. I will say that this is all weird. And Bieber kind of adds fuel to the fire when he's like, just seems like he's so carefully picking out his words to post game answers and other interviews. So I don't know.
0: I mean, you said something is very simple and it seems too simple to be the truth, but sometimes it could be the most simplest solution is the actual solution. And we have talked about him trying to find ways to be successful without the elite velocity. And to his credit, it seemed like he really had done that. But maybe he feels like he's only got a couple of ways to do that with the stuff being what it is. And so he doesn't differ enough that third time through the lineup. And so because he doesn't feel like he has that third or fourth way to carve up a lineup, like here's the formula that I got to follow to be successful. And by the time guys are getting through the third time, they're they're more comfortable with it. I, I don't know. It could be too simple, but maybe that's at least a starting point. And whether or not he believes he, he has the stuff anymore to be able to attack the way that he did two or three years ago, maybe he still just has to be to be different enough to get guys off of the game plan the first two times through because he's still very good. The first two times through, I mean when you're carrying a, a batting average against of 2.24 the first time through and 2.23 the second time through, like things are going good and then they jump up to 3.15 and guys are just crushing you and they got a 5.89 slug the third time through. How does that happen when you're very good the first time and the second time through? It, maybe it is predictability. And maybe he doesn't have the confidence to, to go about ways a, a different way, but he just needs to. He just needs to be different enough to get guys off of what he's doing. I mean, I mean, I was even looking to see, is it just, could it be just, he's had rotten luck the third time through. Maybe some things will even out. And I, I, I guess if you want to say like a 326 batting average on balls in play compared to 240 the second time through but it was 302 the first time through like i don't see anything that's
1: that's he's like, given up eight of his 14 home runs the third time that's through. what i it's, mean it's not that it, he's it's ball. rocket it's shots just he's getting pounded it's rocket shots right it's it's guys just squaring
0: him up and like okay uh what about the he's not stranding as many guys and so maybe that okay yeah he's stranding guys when he's giving up the home runs he's gonna strand somebody on second base when the ball's hit over the fence? No, I don't buy into any of that. I I don't have an answer. I don't think you have an answer. I'm not even sure the team or he has an answer, or else maybe they'd be working towards it right now. Other than, let's see if getting this guy some periodic rest when we can helps reinvigorate the arm. That's what leads me to believe there's something within the stuff, the stuff numbers, because teams look at that. They can see the quality of the stuff as they get to a certain pitch marks, and I think that's more important even than third time through the order we think, oh, well, the guy's seeing him a third time, that's going to be the big deciding factor. Maybe, but I think it goes very much in tandem with just the pitch count and a guy getting labored as the, the, the start goes on. So maybe it's just a quality dip in the stuff that he's letting go the third time through. I don't know what it is, but I certainly know that if we see it and fans see it, the Guardians see it, Bieber sees it, all the other teams see it as well. And they're They're not going to be paying premium for a guy they can only use two times through the lineup in a playoff game.
1: I can tell you that. Yeah, that's, that's the troublesome part of this is because it's, it's so funny when I see, you know, when he has a rough start and fans are like, Oh, that's it. You got to trade him. You got to trade him. It's like, well, yes, but everyone else is seeing what you're seeing. Okay. So it's, it's like like the other teams' front offices have the MLB TV package. They can watch games out of their market as long as they're not blacked out. So <laughs> it's it's tough. I mean, I, I you're going to need to extract maximum value. You're going to need a team that is bold enough to believe that they see something that they think they can get more out of Bieber than this team with the vaunted pitching factory can. And that's, that's tough. I don't know. I don't think you want to trade them to Tampa. You haven't had much luck dealing with them. Mm. They're the one team that I feel like it thinks they can turn everyone into gold. You' got a pretty strong track record of being able to do
0: it. Baltimore is Baltimore, like just they're, they're so eager to taste playoff success, and they do have a number of position player, minor league prospects. I think aren't, aren't a number of them in the infield. Like That's the one thing Cleveland really needs is to add more <laughs> minor league infielders. But it, that it could potentially be a match. I know other teams have been floated out there. But it, the biggest thing comes down to, can the team that's trading for Bieber trust that he's going to be the same guy deep into a playoff start? They have to be able to believe that. And it goes beyond surface level numbers. It goes beyond what a batting average is. All these teams, we're talking about stuff numbers, and that's looking at the quality of of how it's moving in comparison to other pitches and the location. They have all this stuff, too. It's not just a, a Guardians trade secret because, oh, well, he's playing in progressive field. No, teams, everybody has their own numbers, so no one's going to get fooled in that regard. If there's some sort of dip in the stuff, he's going to have to be able to prove that that was some sort of fluke. That was a couple of week, a few starts stretched. I I got that figured out. I'm less predictable now. Whatever it is, otherwise... I know as myself, trading for him, I wouldn't do it. If I didn't believe I could trust him a third time through, or if I saw some warning signs screaming at me in my face that his stuff just doesn't hold up as long as it it once did, I'd need to know more, and I certainly am not going to give you a premium for that guy. And then if that's the case, I don't think the Guardians trade him. They're not going to—you think they're going to accept 50 cents on the dollar for— for trading their ace in the middle of a season when they're also in first place, I find that hard to believe.
1: Tell me if you agree with this then. If you're hanging on to Bieber, is it because you aren't going to get what you want, or is it because you feel like you need him to get to the finish line this year? Both. And he would be one of your playoff starters? Both. Hmm. if somebody this was podcast stinks everything is always in the middle there's always nuance <laughs> I, I want hate, hot takes David. i hate details
0: i i don't want to look below the <laughs> surface i just want a clean answer how would it be anything other than both because okay. this because the second thing exists the first like those two things are tied together because if they, if they were You're losing me to my next if, if they were. It adds just a little bit of of more of a a convince-me factor. Why do I need to give up Bieber? You need to convince me that I need... that's, That's their negotiating chip here.
1: So then if you end up keeping him, don't you have to add in a different way? Yeah. I don't see a way this team can just stand pat. Stay the course. Just keep going the way they're going. I don't see a scenario for that. Am I crazy? If you're keeping Bieber, Mm -hmm. it is at least in large part because you are worried about getting to the finish line with Quantrill hurt, McKenzie hurt, Savali, a big injury risk at all times, and three rookie starting pitchers who you're already coddling. So that plays a part in it. And you don't think that you can get the return that would both help your offense and not completely cripple your starting rotation. And if that's the case, then you got to add. Because we don't need to talk about like Bieber isn't some scrub. I mean, even with his struggles third time through, he's still a solid starting pitcher. And if you, especially in the playoffs, you can manipulate him and, Only let him face guys two times, and he can be pretty valuable there. So there are benefits to keeping him. It's not like you have to just take the best offer and pack his bags for him and not think twice. They may do that, but you don't have to do that. And if you end up keeping him, he can be a pretty useful guy. And If that's the case, you have to find some other way to add. I just don't see a scenario where standing Pat makes sense. Yeah, I I hate just
0: letting things exist as they are. This team does that a lot. For as as the few times we can point to them actually going all in and making this big move, I think their more preferred outcome is always, oh, we'll just let this play out a little bit more. Oh, we'll just trust that our our evaluations and our projections were correct and everyone will get back to their levels. I hate that. I want to make a decision one way or the other. Because I think it benefits you in the long run, whether it benefits you for the rest of that season or benefits you in the future. The one thing that just is so painful is just standing pat and letting things keep playing out. Be the aggressor for once. This team hates being the aggressor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They'll do it. Antonetti will do it. He'll get that little itch, I think, at times, and he'll start feeling it. But uh, otherwise, they just want this stuff to play out. Just let That's out of my hands. Let this... Let the baseball gods do what they will with this. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you need to add if you're not going to trade Bieber. And that's tough because you're going to take that Bieber conversation all the way up to the deadline, I'm sure.
1: Well, you'd rather have him face the Pirates than the Rangers, right? <laughs> True. He should boost his value back up. <sighs> yeah, let's go ahead and uh just for
0: old times' sake. All right, let's table that for a little bit. We'll get back to that, I'm sure, in the coming episodes. Go join us at Patreon for more Shane Bieber trade discussion, because everybody loves that. This show is brought to you in part by SeatGeek. You can get $20 off your first ticket purchase over at SeatGeek SeatGeek by using the code SELBY, S-E-L-B-Y. Save yourself some money. I don't think you'll be buying tickets to see any of these draft picks anytime soon, but Cleveland did make some, although when they draft a reliever, Anywhere on the first day, like I got Nick Sandlin vibes where we were talking about, could this guy come up immediately and help this team? I thought that with Walters, the guy they took their third selection. <laughs> immediately I'm thinking, college guy that is a reliever. You're already, you're already determined this guy's a reliever. So there's no, well, we want to get him stretched out or we want to see what he could do. No, they are clearly targeting him as a reliever. Am I wrong for thinking, where does this guy fit in the bullpen very, very soon?
1: No. <laughs> I mean the the one thing they haven't had a lot of bullpen depth in the upper levels in recent years. So this can help with that. I I mean I don't I don't know anything about these kids. This is not the podcast <laughs> for college baseball talk. But uh yeah, I mean that that's one thing that always I think raises your antenna is I mean, Sandlin, it seemed like he was going to come up five minutes after he was drafted. <laughs> yeah. And then some things got in the way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you've seen relievers make it up like the year they were selected. I don't know that that's going to happen with this kid, but you start thinking about next year and the makeup of the bullpen and where he fits, right? Yeah, I think so. That that clearly
0: jumped out at me. Now, the the kid they took with their first overall pick, <laughs> why is it inevitable power-hitting left-handed catcher, not sure if he'll stick at that position. Immediately, everyone just assumes, ah, Kyle Schwarber. The the Guardians just took Kyle Schwarber. I can't wait for him to show up in the World Series in a couple of years and just torment whichever team that is for Joe Buck to join the commentary team just for that series so he can gush all over Ralphie Velasquez. But hey, Ralphie Velasquez, power bat, that's kind of new. It's not just a contact guy. Uh, we're, we're targeting some power in the draft? Okay, I can get with this.
1: So did he used to be a college pitcher who thrives off command and has like a solid unspectacular fastball? Or has he always just been a high school power hitting <laughs> catcher?
0: <laughs> it must have got him confused with another Ralphie Velasquez. No Miles Naylor. No Miles Naylor. And uh, already love that they're making jokes about the Guardians not targeting him. Okay, so I did have a thought about targeting a, a a power bat. We know that they have targeted the contact guys for years and years and years. They were doing that when other teams were focused on power. Part of me thinks, are the teams starting to focus more on the contact? And now the Guardians are switching gears here and they want to target power. Do they want to go in cycles here and, and consider different things? But we know that they have really focused on the contact guys. I think they've really studied how... Contact guys are what they are, and how do they take that skill and maybe teach that to guys that don't have a great contact ability? whether or not they're successful, I don't know, but I'm wondering, through all of the, the the several years of taking those contact bats and trying to work with them, do they think they have a better handle on that to be able to teach that because they've worked with so many contact hitters that maybe they have a better idea of what makes them tick. And so now they feel like we can target a guy that has more power because we think even if he's not a great contact guy and I'm not saying that about Velasquez I'm just saying in particular a, a power guy do you do they have a better understanding and maybe a thought internally that we can make them a little bit better in the contact side because we've spent so many years really studying what makes those contact hitters
1: contact hitters it's a great thought i have no idea <laughs> know I think we we can say with some confidence like they've prioritized contact in recent years, right? But you still can't get them to admit that. Right. It's that's the thing, is they will their default setting on anything like that is, you know, it's not one size fits all. And they'll point to examples of guys that they targeted who didn't fit that profile. Now you can see through the BS and you can just look at enough people, and then, you know, they'll they'll tell you in comp in that yes, like they they clearly have. You can't just deny the shift in strategy. But I don't know that one player or two players or one draft will flip that on its head. So the 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 thing that makes this so difficult, and I, I mean, it's it's tough because it's like. I could write, I wrote a big takeout on the pitching factory, I think it's three and a half years now. And I've kicked around pursuing a story on that same angle again, because I feel like there's just so much new information and they've even learned more in that domain since that time. And you see a new wave of starting pitchers come up and it's like, oh man, like, like, I would love to hear the process with Bybee and Williams and Allen and what's changed since Plesak and Bieber and Savali and since Kluber and Clevenger. And the problem is, while I think that would be interesting, I think like you you almost have to do something on the hitting side and why it has been so difficult to mirror that. And I've, I wrote, I think it's been maybe, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before where I did a big takeout on the hitting side and sort of their, like their struggles and like their hope moving forward. And a lot of it was based on contact and you know kind of like the safer bets. But the problem is this stuff takes so it takes so long to learn whether what you're doing is working because you don't know exactly if it's the player's fault, did they not put in the work? Did they just not have the skill set to do what they need to do? Is it scouting is it the development is it the coaching you know what where did the failure stem from so it takes so long to learn from it that i don't know like if if the shift in approach to the contact stuff is a failure like do we know yet do we know for sure is it going to take more time did they do they feel like they've already learned from it and they're this is the start of that a new shift. What are they shifting toward? Like it's, it's really difficult. And like, I think they're kind, it's like, it's just always fluid. And I think even in their minds, it's probably like they're constantly searching for answers because they, they're just, this is not black and white. And I think it takes a long time to sort of understand what went wrong. Like we talk about specific hitters and their profiles and whatnot, but, they're thinking more about their internal processes and how to identify where they screwed up, where they succeeded. At what point in the timeline did something happen that allowed Tanner Bybee to start throwing 99 and throwing with conviction and developing a better slider and all that. Like it's it's not just one thing and it the success stories and the failure stories I think are equally critical in helping shape your organizational philosophies but those take so long to learn from. Yeah. I, I'm not
0: saying that I'm giving them some sort of credit here. Like, Oh, Oh, they, they've, they've clearly figured something out. I don't, these are just questions that I ask myself because clearly it's a fascinating topic. I, I, I really think they, they have gotten to the bottom of what they believe makes a contact hitter tick and, they think that it's a, a skill that can be taught to some degree. And so maybe that opens up the door for them to stop taking all of the contact bats and implement that strategy. I think that's what they've tried to teach with Gabriel Arias, and I think they're still teaching that at the major league level. And on some level, you can look at some guys that have gotten better at being a little bit more selective, like the walk numbers have gone up and the strikeout numbers have dipped a little bit. I don't know if at the end of the day that will be a successful implementation of what they believe they've learned but i've got one mind-melting pretzel for you to twist yourself into do you consider will benson a victory for the player development team
1: hmm that's a good question i don't know or is I, it all I, it's I, all joey Votto. case
0: it's the joey Votto conversation <laughs> he had that was it
1: But at every single level, he would struggle initially, like in the first year he was there, because if he would get promoted midseason, he'd struggle at the new level in the second half, and then he'd come out blazing in the first half at that same level, and then he'd get the promotion. So I feel like the same things happen in the major leagues. So do you give that credit to player development? Do you give that credit to him for learning from his mistakes? Do you give that credit to the coaching? Do you know what this show is? Do you know what we do?
0: We give the credit to everybody. It's always a collective thing. (laughs) It's never never about one thing or the other, right? It's the whole theme of this. It's not
1: about you or me. It's about the Godcast community.
0: (laughs) That it is. Uh, And them coming together to make fun of us when we say stupid things like having hot takes to begin the year. Do you remember what your hot takes were? Remember what you predicted? No, and I'm terrified. (laughs) Uh, I had forgotten maybe some of the things that we said. Because there's a lot of times we make offhand comments like, everyone rips into me, that's fair, I'll take it. When I said, like, there could be a scenario here where maybe Mike Zanino is actually pretty good. And because maybe the catcher position isn't that hot this year, he finds his way into the All-Star game. Wasn't that crazy? Just did it a couple of years ago with Tampa Bay. Well, Let me point out, it was not part of my hot takes. I did not say that Zanino was going to be an all-star. Zanino was in the hot takes, and it came from you. Do you remember what your hot take was in, in relation to Mike Zanino? I don't. I've blocked everything related to him out of my mind. Bo Naylor catches more games than Mike Zanino. Ooh. Nailed it. Maybe. Initially, I'm like... Uh, You can't play Naylor every day. Give him a break like three times a week. Then I see Cam Gallagher just (laughs) not hitting anything, and that that trend continues.
1: Does Cam Gallagher keep his job if Bieber gets traded? Does Gallagher go with Bieber? David Fry can throw some runners out. Get a bullet Sunday.
0: I'm not saying this has to be the case for every lefty because Bo Naylor, just like his brother, should face some lefties. So it's not just a a self-fulfilling prophecy here. Well, he can't hit lefties because you never let him develop against them. But wouldn't you seek out those tough lefties and get David Fry in
1: there to catch against them? Like it seems so like Naylor natural, Fry is pretty much all you need right now. Yeah, it's like a natural thing.
0: Okay, well you feel good about that one. Uh, My prediction that Daniel Espino starts a playoff game, not going to come to fruition. How about this one? Josh Bell will be a guardian for one year only, said
1: Zach. Ooh, well, I mean, maybe. Maybe he just feels so bad that he declines it. I don't know. He, You see signs of it. Right? He had that game over the weekend. Was it Friday? Yeah. Reached base five times? For as awkward as the swing looks sometimes, when he does get a hold of one and it always seems to be a fastball at his chin and he just tomahawks it into like Lake Erie, does look nice. I think he'll be here next year. Uh, That was my prediction.
0: Josh Bell will be just good enough that it's not a bad season, but he will be back. That was my prediction. I think that that still looks like it's on course. I am, this is looking at the most recent case where we saw a hitter just tumble off of a, a cliff was Franmil Reyes. Fair enough, I think we'll, we'll always in our minds link the two most close case of, of two guys looking like they, they just lost whatever they used to have. I don't see that with Bell. Franmil, remember some of those at-bats where he just, it was like three pitches back to the dugout. He looked like he wasn't even picking up what pitch it was. And there are times where Josh Bell clearly looks in between. But looking at his Savant page, to me, that still looks like a guy I'm going to continue to play. Because it's just enticing enough that I don't think it's crazy that he goes on one of those blistering stretches like he had in the first half last year. And this is always the sort of hitter he is. I think if you ask every fan base that watched Josh Bell for a full season, will tell you, he is a guy that it frustrates the absolute hell out of you, but then goes on a stretch where you can't wait for that guy to get up to the plate. Hopefully that this little uh, sore leg that he's got, and he takes a foul ball right off. The, what was it was like the upper part of the thigh. It looks like it hurt. looks like it hurt the big guy, uh, but still comes up and has a two-run hit, and he's running down to first base. Like no, this is not going to be a double. But you're seeing signs, and I'm going to continue to play that guy because I'm seeing just. It's like, it's not great, but it's, isn't it just like enticing enough that I'll just stick with it and grip my teeth, but I think it's in there still.
1: You have to, because he's, he's one of the few guys in this lineup who can, you know, if Ahmed Rosario gets hot, okay, but they're all singles. And this is not to slam the guy. I told you, I've retired from the Ahmed wars. I don't care anymore. But there's a difference between when he gets hot and when Josh Bell gets scorching hot. And it's home runs and it's doubles and it's from both sides of the plate. So it's against lefties and righties like that's that can elevate your lineup that can lengthen it out. That gives you middle of the order thump, something they need so badly. So, yeah, you have to. The disappointing part for this team is that he's your D.H. So you're running out this D.H. every day that limits your flexibility and makes it so you can't get guys like Tyler Freeman in the lineup who's hitting three oh eight despite only playing on Sundays. It's amazing.
0: But he Freeman like Rosario, his scorching hot still only helps you to some level. Ahmed Rosario, I don't how how often are you ever gonna see a team, even if he's facing a lefty, it's very rare that you're gonna see him just be walked. Unless it's like extra innings, it just makes sense to put him on first base. But even that then you wouldn't do it because who's hitting right behind him you 're not going to put two guys on right in a row the when Josh Bell gets hot other teams that 's a guy that people put up on the whiteboard and say this series we're not letting Josh Bell go off we 're not letting him beat us. He has an ability to change the game with one swing, and we saw just here recently you know we we complained about in that Atlanta series, and wouldn't you know they just go crazy? absolutely bananas with power the next few days after we complain about it, but doesn't that show you? how good this offense can be. Not You don't have to be the Braves. You don't have to hit four home runs in a game. But how much different does this team look if they hit one or two? It's like they don't need seven power bats, but God, add one to this mix and it completely changes the way you look at this team.
1: Yeah. You got three weeks. You have to add. doesn't matter how you do it. One or... Oscar Gonzalez cannot be your big trade deadline addition.
0: <laughs> hey, maybe he could help out against lefties. Because I think having, sure. having somebody to pair with Brennan might be a good choice right now. But you're right. That's not, not anybody's answer. Um, and the, the scary thing, if they brought Gonzalez up, you know what that would do? That would just cut more into Brennan's playing time as opposed to like moving straw off of his. <laughs> can already see mm-hmm. can already see the way that that would go. One... Of the prospect pitchers becomes a regular, said Zach. You're wrong. Three
1: (laughs) of them did. Whoops. (laughs) Should have said three. I mean, it's crazy to think if Espino was healthy, how this would have all played out differently. Maybe, like, maybe Gavin Williams would still be a triple A, although that just seems so pointless. I think they would certainly trade Bieber. Um, you know Mackenzie injured maybe they wouldn't have brought Cal Quantro back as soon it would be very interesting and then I mean trying to juggle four pitchers who need their innings <laughs> managed right but the, couldn't that actually
0: make it easier because maybe yeah. you would have massaged it so you're counting on three at any one given time and then the one is taking the breather could, could he could Logan Allen be back for that start coming out of the break the fifth guy I would be very surprised if it was not him. Seems like it lines up for that. Uh, Hey, credit for me for one thing. I said if they don't make that trade prior to, because we recorded this right after the first of the year, if they don't make that trade before spring training and into the season, I said there's a good chance we see three of the prospects. Now, I said Espino, probably not Logan Allen, but whatever. I'll take some credit because I also said stupid stuff like George Valero will be a regular by August.
1: In UFC or in <laughs> the majors.
0: I'm going to give some credit to people that wrote the headlines correctly. He did not go after the umpire. It's a very important distinction to be made to be made here. He deserved the suspension for fighting other players, not the umpire. <laughs> Let's. Well, facts are facts here. The umpire was just in the way. Get out of the way. It's just like, you know, Earl Hebner taking a super kick to the face. Didn't mean to kick Earl, but he was just in the way. And now he's down. So they got to bring another umpire in who runs down the ramp like the guy from SmackDown and the meme. No, okay. They're not going to do that. And I don't condone any sort of violence.
1: Yeah, you hope this isn't a lost season for him, but it's. It's getting dicey. He needs to. He needs to start hitting and doing so consistently. And, I mean, the opportunity is there. They need him to take it.
0: I'm going to go out on a limb and say Tristan McKenzie's not going to finish in the top five Cy Young voting. (sighs) Just injuries killing these hot takes for me. Do you feel good about this one? The number two starting pitcher for the Guardians will be Aaron Savalli. No, because he
1: might be the number one. (laughs) Boy, my predictions are pretty good.
0: No victory lap on Savali? You're not going to tell everyone
1: how right you were about that? I mean, I go down the list here. This is one victory lap after another. I should just kick back. Are you tired?
0: (sighs) How many times can you run around the track? Okay, here's your final one. Jose wins MVP. Mm. Mm, Stupid Otani.
1: Now, what if he gets dealt to the National League? That's a good question. He has to win MVP wherever he goes, right? Like If he goes to the National League, is he just and LMVP, but that Acuna has been unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, you can't take that away from him. He gets screwed just because Otani got, just because the Angels are so inept year after year that yeah, they deal him, and that opens up the door for Jose for MVP. Mm. I actually started writing a piece because I was looking at just the comp- the non Otani competition in the American League, and how I'm so tired of like the he's the most under the radar superstar, whatever, okay you're going to make him overrated if you keep saying that but <laughs> he is just quietly i, I think the, the the thing that stands out most about this year cuz he's quietly i mean his numbers are almost identical to what they were last season like the slash line is almost the same and his ops is 870 and last year it was 869 but it's the well-roundedness it's like he could win a gold glove this year and the base running is always elite and and it's just it's really impressive how he still seems to care about that stuff um so it's I mean if he has a good second half like he could finish second or third again and it's just you know I don't know if he's ever gonna get that one year where he wins MVP it would help if Otani goes to the national league at some point but <laughs> yeah um, he could be a finalist once again pretty crazy uh, but if you think about it,
0: not really crazy at all. All right, my final one. Josh Naylor wins a gold glove at first base. Just erase one day from your mind, and he's having a really <laughs> great season at first base defensively. One day. One day will stick in everybody's brain. But really, the numbers say he's having a good year defensively.
1: Yeah. And if Rafael Palmeiro can win a gold glove there, why can't Josh Naylor? Th- 32 games? <laughs> Before they put Something
0: the Pal- like Palmero rule in place. Is it up there and outs above average?
1: i never First base. I'll never forget. I think it was. Should I name names? Uh, who cares? I think it was Greg Zahn, former catcher analyst. I think lives or lived around here for a little bit. Was on a local radio station a couple years ago and was just bitching about. The media, they don't know how to vote for awards or this or that. It's such BS. They're terrible. They once voted Rafael Palmero Gold Glove Award winner. Bro, media has nothing to do with that. Okay? That's you guys. That's your coaches. All right? Don't talk to us. So, yeah. that's That one was egregious, but I guess anyone can win a Gold Glove. So why not Josh Naylor?
0: I want to to spend more time on this, looking at why he would have five outs above average at first base this year, but be negative one defensive run saved. I've always said those fan graph stats are terrible. I'm only caring about outs above average now. Whatever helps me paint the the best picture that I possibly (laughs) can. (laughs) Forget about that other garbage. Don't trust it. You know who we often talk about an ability to... um, revive a a fandom within yourself and how kids can do that for you went to the game on Thursday and had the family there and my youngest one not too much into it she's still wanting to go over to the kids playhouse and so does my my older one who's now seven but he was taking a little bit of interest in mostly the home runs and the fireworks right the home runs and the fireworks for any kid whether you're seven or whether you're 38 whatever the case may be you're going to be into the fireworks. And so wouldn't you know it, like I told him going in, hey, man, they, they do do the siren and the fireworks for the home runs, but this team doesn't hit too many of them. They go nuts, right, in that game. It was so great. <laughs> and so we're sitting out in the right field res- mezzanine level, the old Pronkville, and so a couple of the home runs, Jimenez's ball comes our way, and Naylor's ball comes our way. And so in both cases, I get the opportunity to to go – crazy because you want I want my my son to, you know, see that this is a fun thing, so I'm like into it. And just in that moment, it was really cool to put all the other stuff aside and just be like, "Home run, dude." Slap hands, we're all having a good time. And so that just sort of helped revive some of that fandom. Otherwise, you're sitting there, you know, I'm sitting there watching the game. I'm not going to go crazy somebody hits a home run. Like I'm happy for the show, I'm happy for the people in the Discord. It's all good. Like good positive vibes. But in that moment, you know, I, I get to be part of that again and just bring a part of my, you know, my inner youth back to the surface to, to help my, my son embrace something that's really cool, seeing a home run at a major league game, which you know, we, in, in our ways where we've seen home runs at major league games, whatever, it's, it's no big deal. But as a fan, that's, you want to go there, you want to see a home run, you want to see it hit your way, you want to see the guy around the bases and hear the siren. It's all, it's all part of the spectacle, and it was so much fun to be able to take part in that with my son.
1: I can't compare to that yet. Um, Our household is just my 13-month-old taking the lid to a mixing bowl and pushing it on his face. (laughs) He now knows the term pig face, and then he goes to his parents and pushes the lid against their face to make it on them. So we share in that. You guys share in home runs and fireworks. (laughs) You know... Kids don't just create
0: these things themselves. They learn this stuff by watching others. So I'm now questioning what's happening at your house.
1: <laughs> because I just took a bunch of victory laps on my amazing predictions. Let me give you a chance to sort of take one yourself. Today's Immaculate Grid, spoiler alert warning. There's a Cleveland row. You have to pick a Cleveland cub and a Cleveland twin. I thought I had two good picks. I went Marlon Bird, Cubs in 2016 Indians. And I went Carl Pavano, who was twins in I think 20, 2009 Indians, maybe. That's not right. I thought those were good. They were both 1%. You knocked it out of the park. So why don't you take us out of here with your two amazing <laughs> well, picks? Well, those were the only amazing picks for today. So I will just
0: choose to focus on them. The Cleveland Twins angle was Jason Kubel. And mm. the Cubs-Indians connection was Sandy Martinez, former random Cleveland player of the day, Sandy Martinez. And probably that is what stuck in my brain as I thought, Cubs-Guardians, well, Cubs-Indians, Sandy Martinez. Of course, that was like 0.02% at the time. So, yeah, as you would expect.
1: Sandy Martinez whose son Angel is on the Guardians 40 man right. roster that's right and Jason Kubel I believe former number one ranked random jersey siding from a few years back
0: <laughs> it didn't go so well
1: this show did I thought this yeah, show went no. they need a better trade deadline acquisition <laughs> than Jason Kubel I hope so
0: We'll see. For Zach, I'm TJ. We'll see you later this week over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Selbius Godcast. Until then, enjoy the break, everybody.